Well, here's the question I would like for you to consider today. If you ever find yourself in a situation where they shove the microphone in your face and everyone's eyes are on you and the people want to know what you believe, they want to hear what you have to say, what will you say? Will you speak up boldly for Jesus Christ in that moment or do you think that you might wilt under the bright lights and miss the opportunity to speak up and take a stand for him. Well, in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, we're going to see two of Jesus' apostles faced with that very situation. And we're going to watch and we're going to learn from them by how they responded. And I know it's going to challenge us for sure. It's going to challenge us. I remember being in an event here a while back where one of our men was standing up in front talking to a bunch of us, and uh, he shared about this recurring dream that he would have every so often. And in that dream, he found himself in a room full of people, kind of like this, and as he looked around, he recognized many of the faces in the room, and in the dream, it began to dawn on him that these were all of the significant people from every era of his life. Uh, friends from childhood, teachers from school, coaches, teammates on the sports teams he'd been on, and of course family members, cousins and siblings and parents and grandparents, all there together in the room. We know how dreams work sometimes, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden in his dream, someone asks him to get up in front of everybody and say something. Now, Greg is a quiet and reserved sort of guy. He's not the kind of fellow to, to put himself out there much. But he said, in my dream, I watch myself walk up in front of this group, and instead of being all timid and all shy, I hear myself share my testimony of how Jesus Christ died for my sins and saved me and changed my life and how I want all the people that I've known all throughout my life to know that same Jesus that I know. And he said, I was stunned at how bold I was in my dream, talking about Jesus. And as he was sharing this with us, he actually got kind of emotional. And he looked out at us and he said, that's the me I want to be. That's the me I want to be. That's the version of Greg that I hope God will let me be someday, bold and unashamed to speak up about Jesus. I wonder if anybody else can relate to having that desire in your own heart. Back in the day when I worked for a particular business, I remember one year going to the company Christmas party. You know what those are like, right? This one was held at a very swanky restaurant, and everybody was there, all the employees, all the higher-ups, all the supervisors, the big boss was there, everybody was there. I remember one of the supervisors was a, a Hindu fella, not really a friend of Christianity. I think the boss was an atheist. Many of the people there were not Christians. And after the hors d'oeuvres were served and the drinks, and then I, I noted that the main course was on its way, and uh, in that moment... Somebody piped up and said, hey, let's have Steve ask a blessing for us. And uh, I remember standing up, and somebody handed me a microphone, and I, I felt everybody's eyes kind of burning into me, and I felt this constriction in my throat, <laughs> and I thought, well, 
I guess I could say, you know, kind of this generic, innocuous sort of prayer that wouldn't offend everybody, like, thank you, God, for this food, amen. But what I heard actually come out of my mouth in the next minute was something more like this. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of year, Christmas, when you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come and save his people from their sins. I said, thank you so much for your amazing love. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the grave. And I pray that everybody in this room might come to know you like I know you. And thank you for this food in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, I remember when I opened my eyes, the room was very quiet. And uh, I stepped back and I thought, wow, was that me? Was that me praying that prayer? You know, Jesus promised his followers that his spirit would infuse them with holy boldness so that when it was prime time, they would be ready. Once he was preparing his 12 disciples for the persecution that was coming, and he said this, this is in Matthew chapter 10, Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they do deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That speaks of spirit-empowered, holy boldness, doesn't it? Your mouth is talking, but it's not really you. Someone is speaking through you. I wonder how many of you have ever had that experience of feeling like somebody's saying this through my mouth right now. Anybody? I mean, that is an incredible experience where you kind of step aside from yourself and you're watching yourself speak and you're going, oh my, is that me? Well, Peter and John experienced that, and we're going to be challenged by their example today. So let's step back for a minute, and let's kind of remember where we are in this uh, story in the book of Acts. The book of Acts unfolds the story, the account of the very first Christian church, right? In fact, we're discovering there are a lot of firsts in the book of Acts. The first church, the first Christian sermon the first uh, miracle performed by the apostles. Today we're going to encounter another first, the very first instance of Christians being persecuted for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. You might recall from our study that Peter and John had healed a crippled beggar. Remember this? And that guy had immediately, you can imagine, for the first time in his life, he, he can walk and he, he, he's totally uninhibited. He jumps up, he says, walking and leaping and praising God, right there in the temple courtyard. It was right at the time where thousands of Jewish people would have been streaming in at the time of the evening sacrifice. And of course, when they saw all the commotion, they became curious and they rushed over to see what was going on. And Peter... Simon Peter, always the opportunist, sees that a crowd has gathered and he he seizes that moment and he delivers this strong message to the crowd. And we looked into that last weekend. It was a sermon about how God had sent them their promised Messiah and that he was named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And he told the crowd that they had totally misread Jesus. They, they had missed who he really was. And they had called for the execution of their own Messiah. They had murdered their own Messiah. But God had raised Jesus from the dead and it had actually been the risen Jesus who had supplied the power to heal this man who was standing there before him. It was the power of the living Jesus Christ. And it was a powerful moment. And the the people, the crowd was tuned in. But the authorities, the authorities got wind of what was going on. So let me read what happened next. This is from Acts chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. It says, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, these are all the officials there responsible for keeping order, came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly, what? Disturbed. Because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and Because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. So they took them into custody. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family, so the, the religious heavyweights of the day. And they had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Speaking of that healing. Then Peter, note what it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, speaking of Jesus, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Verse 12, for salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name, Jesus. And they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Verse 21, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 
years old. So as I said, what we see here is the very first instance, recorded instance, of Christians being persecuted for their faith and for their loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Historians tell us of five distinct outbreaks of persecution within the first ten years of the church's existence, and this is the very first one. It's at the hands, as we can see, of the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem, but you probably know that later on this persecution would widen in scope, right? And followers of Jesus would undergo all manner of torture and inhumane treatment at the hands of the Romans also. So not just the Jewish leadership, but it would, it would include the Romans eventually, and that would begin with the emperor Nero. Have you heard of him? Nero, the Roman emperor in the mid-60s. He's the guy who would dip Christians in melted wax and light them up as human torches to illuminate his courtyard whenever he would throw a big party. And mistreatment of Christians has continued down to this present day with up to 100 million believers, 100 million Christians all over the globe experiencing some form of persecution today, right now. Well, let me tell you something. Persecution, as unfair and unjust and horrible as it is, did you know this, has always had beneficial results for the cause of Christ. You hear that and you say, well, how so? Well, for one, persecution reveals who the true Christians really are, who the true believers really are, right? Because people who are just posing, people who are just playing the game, will not stay loyal to Jesus when the, the heat gets to be too much for them. They'll bail out. So in that way, persecution purifies the church. You've heard that before, right? It does. Also, persecution strengthens gospel community. As the true believers, the true Christians come together in those times in order to, to draw strength from each other so they can stay faithful and continue to take a stand for Christ. And so, ironically, the persecution that was intended to stamp out Christian influence actually has the opposite effect. Future generations hearing these stories are inspired to take their own stand for Jesus Christ when they hear about those who laid it all on the line for Christ. You've heard the saying, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Persecution can come in many forms, many degrees, from mild to severe, from psychological intimidation to social alienation to physical harm, from being ridiculed for being a Christian to being passed over for a promotion at work because of your reputation as a Christian to being beheaded for refusing to denounce Jesus. May I just remind us that Satan has always hated Jesus Christ. The devil has always hated Christ and those who love Jesus. And for centuries, he's been working through willing accomplices down here on the earth to try and dishearten God's people, immobilize them, and silence them. That hasn't changed in 2,000 years. 
And it's happening right up to this moment. Now remember a few weeks ago I talked about this pattern, this pattern that we often see being played out in the book of Acts. Do you remember that? The pattern goes like this. A miracle gets performed, then a crowd, a curious crowd gathers, and then a sermon is preached, a Jesus-centered sermon is preached, and then the people respond, and then the local leaders react to all of that. And that's exactly what happened in this instance here in Acts chapter 4. And the local leaders do react. And, and, and how did they react to this healing of the lame man and to Peter's sermon? It says they were greatly disturbed, agitated. They were disturbed because, they, why? They felt threatened. They could see that instead of this movement withering and dying after Jesus had been executed, the young Christian movement was instead flourishing. It was growing, and it was growing fast. That little band of Jesus followers that had begun in that upper room with 120 people had now mushroomed to over 10,000, perhaps even as many as 20,000 people. And it was happening right in their own backyard, in the courtyard of their beloved Jewish temple. And this, you got to know, this just irked them to no end. Plus, it felt like it was happening at the expense of their reputation and their influence. Because these young upstart Galilean preachers kept telling the people that God was holding their leaders responsible for the death of their Messiah. And so all of this, as you can imagine, felt very threatening to the, the power base of the leadership there. And, and they're thinking, you know, we just got to do something to try to put a lid on this thing and get our arms around it. So what do they do? Well, they haul these guys in, right? They put them in jail overnight, and then they schedule them to appear the next morning before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. That's, that was the high council, the, the Jewish Supreme Court, as it were. You say, well, what was that? Well, that was an elite group of 70 religious officials who were basically the esteemed, highly regarded VIPs in Jerusalem. They were the heavyweights, the heavy hitters. They had a lot of clout. They were responsible for a lot of things, including keeping order in the capital city. And this group, the Sanhedrin, knew that the Romans who were over them did not like it one bit when there was social unrest in, in any of their districts. So you can imagine these men, they're watching what's going on and they're wringing their hands in consternation because of the growing popularity of these zealous new Christians and their message, which was so divisive. They needed to shut this thing down before it got out of hand and, and had some serious repercussions. And so the next day, they send some guards to go get Peter and John, and apparently the healed man too. I guess he'd been placed in custody as well. And they were brought into the great hall where the Sanhedrin would meet. It was called the Hall of Hewn Stone. And you got to know that had to be very intimidating for those guys. They knew this ruling body that they stood before possessed the authority to have them put away for good or to have them beaten into submission or even to have them executed. Peter and John knew very well that their fate rested in the hands of these men whom they now stood before. 
And so there they were. The Sanhedrin, deeply irritated with them. This would be their moment of truth, right? What are they going to do? Will they hang tough? Will they stay on course and live with the consequences? Or will they cave in in their hour of testing and back down? I wonder, what would you have done? I wonder, what would I have done in that situation? And maybe more importantly for us, what will you do the next time you find yourself in a situation where a word for Jesus needs to be spoken, but it might cost you something? Maybe not your life, but maybe your reputation, maybe your social standing, maybe some respect, maybe a friendship. And so there they stood, and the accusations, the charges, start to come down. What authorization do you have for healing people? What are your credentials? What are your qualifications for teaching in the temple courts? This is our domain. What are you doing here? Peter responds. I love this. Sirs, if we're being put on trial today for doing an act of kindness in healing this crippled man, well, you ought to probably think about how that's going to look. But know this, Peter said, this miracle of healing wasn't really our doing, not really. It was Jesus Christ who authorized it. We, we simply operate in His authority. Jesus, that's right, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you had executed. And beyond that, that rumor that you've heard is true. God did indeed raise Jesus from the dead, and it was His power, His name, that healed this brother right here through us. And in fact, it is only in His name that anyone will find salvation. There is no other name, only Jesus. Wow! You've heard the phrase, speaking truth to power? That's what was going on right here. What a demonstration of holy boldness. But it gets even better. The Sanhedrin is kind of rocked back on their heels by this. And they're thinking, aren't, aren't these guys just lowly Galileans? They weren't trained in our system. They didn't attend our schools. How is it that they can speak to us like this? They don't sound like a couple of old hayseeds, dimwits, backwoods people. Where, where did they get this ability to speak with such command, such gravitas, such weightiness? And they don't know what to do. So they decide to send them out for a bit and have this little private powwow amongst themselves. And they, they're talking and they say, look, if we do something really bad to these guys... All those people outside who just became Christians, they're going to be in an uproar when they find out. It's just going to stir things up more. What are we going to do? Apparently someone piped up and said, well, let's do this. Let's, I know what we should do. Let's issue a gag order. Yeah. Let's issue an edict 
forbidding these guys to speak anymore in this name of Jesus. Yeah, what do you guys think? Heads are nodding. Yeah, yeah, good idea. That should do it. That, sound good, everybody? We're all in on this? Okay, we're all on board. All right, bring them back in. So they trot Peter and John back in and the man who had been healed. All right, fellas, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to put a muzzle order on you guys. We're ordering you to stop talking about this Jesus fella as if he was alive or something. You do that and we won't hurt you, okay? So let's, let's play nice here. Just do what we tell you and everything's going to be fine. And again, Peter pipes up and his response is awesome. He looks at this court, the Supreme Court, and he says, you be the judge. And they were, right? You be the judge. Should we obey God or should we obey you? And you've got to know how enraging that would have been to these guys. Because they were used to thinking that, that they spoke for God. And that obeying them was obeying God. But here this fellow was pitting them against God like they were God's opponents. That they were working against the divine. And I'm telling you, that did not feel good at all to them. But it's amazing, these disciples didn't back down. They, in essence, they said, ah, we're sorry, sirs, but we cannot abide by your order. Here's the deal, you got to know this, we can't help it. We cannot help but speak about all that we have seen and heard about Jesus. We have to, it's in our hearts, we're going to talk about Jesus, we can't help it. Like you've observed, we've been with Jesus and he's gotten into us. And he's changed us. And we're telling you there's nothing you could do or say that's going to shut us up. That is some serious holy boldness. Wouldn't you agree? When I think about that, I think about Martin Luther. Centuries later, when he was standing there at his own tribunal... One man against the whole system, right? Looking up at this high council and without flinching, planting his feet and saying, here I stand. You're not going to move me. <laughs> Do what you will. Threaten what you will. It's not going to move me. I am resolved in my heart to do the bidding of God, not your bidding. And if that contradicts what you're telling me, then so, so be it. I'm not going to back down no matter what it might cost me. Don't you want that? Don't you want that kind of holy boldness in your own heart, in your own life? Doesn't something inside of you, like my friend Greg, say, that's the version of me I want to be? In that moment that cries out for somebody to speak up for God, I want that to be me. I want to be that person. Isn't there something inside of you that prays, Oh God, make me the kind of Christian that's willing to risk everything in order to speak up for you. No matter what it costs me. I know I want that. I know I want that. Well, here's what I'd like to do. With, with all of that as a, a backdrop, I'd like to draw out several truths from this 
story, this stirring story, some observations about Christians and about persecution and about how God works through all of that. It's on your study outline there if you haven't pulled that out yet. So here's the first one. Tell me if this is true. Our Lord has no qualms about putting his people in situations that call for holy boldness. That's true, isn't it? God knows that we need to be tested in these kinds of situations in order for our spiritual spines to be stiffened, in order for our spiritual muscles to flex so we can grow and become stronger. We need to be in situations that call for something like this. Now, it might be something big and intimidating like these guys faced, but more likely it'll be something on a smaller scale where, where in a particular moment we find ourselves with a choice. I can speak up and say something or I can be mute. I can be silent and let it go. I wonder if any of you has been in that situation in recent weeks or months. After last night's celebration, a teenage gal came up to me and she said, I was in that situation this week. I was sitting in my classroom and I heard this other gal talking and she said, you know, I, I don't really go to church and I really don't think God is even interested in a person like me. And our gal said, I just, it just came out of me. <laughs> she said, I told this this other gal in my class that, that God exists and that God loves her and that Jesus Christ came and died for her sins so that she could know Christ. She's like, Pastor Steve, it's just what you were talking about tonight. She's like, came out. And, and she said to this girl, and can I text you some scripture verses from the Bible a little bit later on? And the girl said, yeah, please do. Isn't that beautiful? I think God knows that his people need to be in these kinds of situations. You, you know, you, you can't grow unless you're tested. And neither can I. I think God orchestrates these things for, for the glory of Christ and yes, for our good. So I would say this to you after hearing a sermon on this topic today, do not be surprised if this week coming up you find yourself in a situation where you have a choice. Do I speak up for Jesus or do I stay silent? It would be just like the Lord to set that up, don't you think? In order to be prepared for that, I'd like you to remember number two here. The key to having that kind of boldness, that kind of confidence, is twofold from this story. It's being with Jesus, and it's being filled with His Holy Spirit. Do you remember the two statements that were made about Peter and John? Verse 8. Then Peter, what does it say? Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where boldness comes from. Verse 13, the, the officials looked at them. It says, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That'll preach, my friends. <laughs> I got to thinking about this, and I just wonder what opportunities I've missed in my life Opportunities that were right there, right in front of me, and I missed them because I hadn't been with Jesus very much and because I hadn't yielded control of my mouth and my mind and my heart to the Holy Spirit. I wonder how many opportunities I've missed. Remember what Jesus said? 
What you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It will be the Spirit speaking through you. But if you or I are not surrendered to the Holy Spirit in that moment, then we might not have His words on our lips. We might miss it. The opportunity might pass us by. I wonder how many of you have ever experienced the regret, the regret of missing out on a golden opportunity to speak out for God. Can I see your hands? Me too. What do you do when that happens? Well, I'll tell you what I do. When, it, when I realize what happened, I, first thing I do is I ask the Lord's forgiveness. I say, oh, Lord, I am so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. I obviously was thinking about something else other than you. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Then I ask him for another chance. I say, Lord, would you give me another opportunity? I'll be ready next time. I'll be Filled with your Holy Spirit. I'll be ready. Give me another chance. And you know what? If you pray that prayer, get ready. Because God is the God of the second chance. And the third chance. And the fourth chance. And that's a prayer he delights to answer. Aren't you so glad he's a God of grace? You can do that too. You can do that too. Well, here's a third observation. I think we need to hear this. Never be ashamed Never be ashamed to declare the exclusivity of the gospel. What's that? That salvation is found only in Jesus because doing so magnifies the uniqueness of Christ's redeeming work on the cross. He's the only one who ever died for other people's sins, right? Peter was not ashamed in that moment to say there is no other name. By which we must be saved. It just drives me nuts when prominent, well known preachers are given an opportunity, they're up at the plate, bases are loaded, the game's on the line, and the pitcher lobs them a nice, juicy, hanging curveball, and instead of belting it out of the part, they whiff. They swing and miss. Drives me crazy. When the lights are on and the cameras are rolling and millions of people are watching and the host looks at you and says, so, are you saying that people who don't believe in Jesus won't make it into heaven? And the guy kind of shifts in his seat and hems and haws and says, well, you know, I mean, who am I to say you know, who God will accept and not accept and who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? Who am I to, you know, God's the judge. You know, what I do is deliver a positive message and do what I do and I let God do what he does. Swing and miss. I'm like, seriously? I mean, you got a chance to tell millions of people that Jesus Christ loves them and came and died for their sins, and you say that? For Christ's sake, let's not be like that. Let's be ready. 
Let's be bold. Let's allow the Spirit of God to speak through us respectfully, but firmly. Let's declare what Peter did. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. It's got to be the name of Jesus. Let's speak it. Not all mean and nasty. Very respectfully, but firmly. That's actually the loving thing to do. I know it's not politically correct to say that. I know that in this postmodern era that we live in, if you said something like that, you might be branded, right? A hater or a bigot. But listen, it's not our message to change. It's not our... You've heard me say this before. We're just the mailman, right? We just deliver the message. We don't tamper with the mail. We don't change it. We don't alter it. We just deliver the message. It's not ours to tamper with. It's Jesus' message. We shouldn't be disrespectful or dishonoring or demeaning or condescending about it, but we should unashamedly declare the truth of God when we're given those opportunities. As I said, it's actually the loving thing to do. Because apart from Jesus, people won't be saved. Observation number four. There are times, excuse me, there are times when a choice has to be made. Obey God or obey man. And God's people must prepare themselves to accept the consequences of choosing to please God. Choosing to obey God. Now again, I need you to hear me on this. I'm not talking about being disrespectful in our tone. I've known some Christian people who bring persecution on themselves because they're just obnoxious. (laughs) It's not really persecution for Jesus' sake. It's just because they're nasty. And in many cases, it's because they reek of self-righteousness. And they come across as being superior. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe that's you. (laughs) And uh, you're not helping the cause of Jesus by being that way. I'm telling you that. Some Christians have this martyr complex. They seem to always be on the outs with lots of people and kind of enjoy it. And really it's not because they're, they're, they're devoted to Jesus. It's because they're nauseously obnoxious. We can be firm, but we can be respectful. We can be honoring. All right, you get the point on that. In the final analysis, see if you agree with me on this. The willingness, our willingness or unwillingness to speak up for Jesus goes to whose smile we're ultimately after. Wouldn't you agree with that? The approval of men, the approval of people, or the smile of God? I mean, ultimately, that's the question. I know when I talk about the smile of God or pleasing God, maybe some of your minds go to performance-based religion, you know, trying to earn God's acceptance, God's favor. And you, you know I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who already have God's acceptance in Christ, acting like it and talking like it. Not being people-pleasing approval addicts, but God-pleasing Jesus addicts. 
living and speaking in such a way as to see their Lord taking great pleasure in their boldness to speak up for his son, Jesus. You got to know that brings a smile to the face of the Father. And I should say this. Jesus Christ did not guarantee that his followers would always be vindicated in this life when they do choose to stand up for him. Isn't this true? Some believers who were faithful ended up rotting away in prison or even getting killed for their allegiance to Christ. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You should, in your life, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It'll give you a whole new set of lenses through which to see your own relationship with Jesus. There is no guarantee that everything's going to come out wonderfully if we stand up for Christ. Not in this life. That's why Christians have always sought to have a pilgrim mentality. Have you heard that phrase before? A pilgrim mentality that this world is not our ultimate home. We're just what? Passing through on our way to our real home. Your best life now is not our motto. Because we look forward to living our best life when? Then! When we're living in that breathtaking city whose architect and builder is God. That's when my best life's going to be. Even if the price of standing up for Jesus and speaking up for him is very great in this life, I'm telling you, obeying God rather than men will prove to be worth it all one day. And then observation number five, when other people see us staying loyal to Jesus, when the people in our lives, our family members, co-workers, see us staying loyal to Jesus at a cost, what that does is it points them to the supreme worthiness of Christ as one who is worth suffering for. When you read the Bible, it's hard to deny that God is glorified through being seen as someone Worthy of gladly suffering for. It tells us God wants to be our most valuable treasure, right? Our highest love, our supreme joy. And when His people gladly say no to self, no to convenience, no to popularity, and yes to Him in a way that shows that to be true, then God is glorified in that. And the people who see it will be inspired to live for him too. I'm inspired by Peter and John's example, aren't you? There's something in me that says, yeah, make me like that. I want to be like that. That's the version of me. I want to be God. Make me that kind of Christian who doesn't back away, who doesn't wilt when the lights are on, who doesn't cave to peer pressure but is willing to speak up for Jesus when a word for Christ needs to be spoken. Well, I wonder this morning, how many of you, let me ask, here in the safety of a church building, how many of you truly want more of this kind of holy boldness in your own life? Can I see your hands? How many of you want that? I do, I do. You say, where does it come from? 
Hearing a sermon about this, well, that could whet your appetite for it. But you know, we're going to see next week, a few verses later, these guys are released and they go back to their church, their community of believers, and they have a prayer gathering and they pray. And in Acts 4.24 and following, it tells us what they prayed. And you know what they prayed for? Grant your servants boldness to speak your word without fear like our brothers just did. I mean, it starts with prayer. It starts with saying, oh God, give me that. Give me that. I want that. I know it comes from you and your spirit in me. We've titled this series Spirit-Filled, right? Today we're talking about spirit-filled boldness. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Spirit's Power and bold witness are linked. And it starts with us opening up our hearts and saying, Oh God, make me that, grant me that holy boldness. And so I challenge you this morning. Will you do that right now? Will you bow your heads with me? And if that resonates deep in your heart, would you just ask the Father in heaven right now through His Spirit to make you that kind of person, to grant you a holy Boldness in your own life. Father, I ask that for myself, for my family, for all of us in this room. I thank you for the holy boldness in kids, in children. Lord, who just speak what's in their mind. And sometimes we as adults have gotten all encrusted over the years with the cares of this world and desire to be, you know, thought of a certain way. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would be ready. And Lord, I pray for all of us that even this week, even this upcoming week, you would give every person in this room an opportunity to speak up for Jesus and to recognize it in that moment, to go, oh, this is it. This is it. I could speak up for for Christ. Lord, we'll just leave the outcome in your hands, the outcome of that. We're not trying to orchestrate anything or make something happen, but we want to honor Christ by speaking for him when a word needs to be spoken. May we be people filled with the Spirit of God. We say with that first church, grant us holy boldness. Use us, Lord, in the lives of the people around us that they might know that we belong to you. And I offer this prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen.